Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Going to Bibles with me tonight to Revelation chapter number one. So just stay standing for a moment. Revelation chapter number one this evening. Revelation and chapter number one. This evening, we come to the topic for our family worship nights that we must be the church. We must be the church. That if we're going to experience revival in our individual lives, we must purpose and we must commit to protect our families. We talked about last night. And we must purpose and commit to be the church. Look with me at verse number 9 of Revelation chapter 1. You may be thinking, well, pastor, this is a strange passage of scripture to go to to teach on the church. I hope you're thinking that now. I hope you won't be thinking that here in about 40 minutes or so when we're finishing up with this section. I hope to point, point it out clearly, clearly to you why this is a crucial passage to understanding how the church is to be the church. Look with me at verse number 1. Or, or rather, verse number nine. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, unto Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot. Or, or, or down to his foot and gird about paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like, like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So look here. John is turning around. He is seeing Jesus. And there are many people who are going, yes, that is what I need in my life. That is what I need for revival. I need to see Jesus. And of course we do. But what I'm pointing out to you tonight is this. That upon looking at Jesus, Jesus redirects your vision to the church. Notice what he's saying. He is saying, the voice behind me, this is Jesus. That's verse 12. The voice behind me, the one speaking to me, it is, it is Jesus. And what is Jesus saying to John? Jesus is saying to John in verse 11, I am Alpha, I am Omega. I'm first, I am the last. And what you see, John, I want you to write it in a book and I want you to send it unto the churches. That when we really see Jesus for who he is, what Jesus leads us to do in our lives is to serve the church. If you see Jesus for who he is, you will find yourself serving the church. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you would use your word in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Amanda and I recently went out for a date night together. We drove to a restaurant that we both desired that 
We wanted to try. We put our names on the list. 30 minutes went by. We still weren't seated. I looked through the window. Most of the restaurant was completely empty. 45 minutes went by. We still weren't in the, in the restaurant eating. I look in still. Most of the, most of the seats were still, still empty. An hour went by. I walked up to the, the hostess. I said, hey, we've been waiting an hour for our seat. I see all kinds of, of empty tables. Can, can you tell me why we have not just been seated in one of those empty tables? The hostess apologized. She says, well, we do have plenty of tables. But unfortunately, we do not have enough servers. You've probably seen this sort of thing at restaurants, small businesses, people looking for help, asking for help. We're hiring. Start today. Bonus if you begin right now. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, at the end of 2021, the number of job openings in the United States was reported at 11 million. And it has all kinds of people asking the question, where have all the workers gone? One, one Christian politician rightly quipped, the job openings are plenty, but the laborers are few. That's just a side note here. That there's absolutely no excuse for an unemployed person to turn down an available job. There's absolutely no excuse for someone who is unemployed to turn down any job opening. There are places all across the country that are understaffed. Meanwhile, 24-year-olds sit around at home complaining that they don't have any job available for them. There's plenty of jobs, just go get one. But it isn't just companies that are asking the question, where have all the workers gone? The church is asking it as well. Let me say a word first. That here at First Baptist, we have some of the most faithful workers in our ministries. Many of the people who serve us by serving our children do so for months at a time, for hours at a time. And they do this with very little recognition. They do it with very little applause. And most people, when they pick up their children, after having dropped their children off for almost two hours, don't even stop to say thank you to the worker who's been watching and teaching their children for that time. So we have some great workers at First Baptist, and if you are one of them and you know who you are, thank you for your service. But the reality is that most churches find themselves in the condition that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter number 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is saying to the disciples, he says, you know what I am short on? Laborers. The harvest, that's plenteous. It's, it's workers that are missing. And Jesus is saying, it's not the money that I'm short on. It's not, not the buildings. It's not the production. It's not the harvest. It is, in fact, workers. And you would think that if Jesus were short on workers, then he could just snap his fingers and create some workers. But that's not what he does. What Jesus says is, it's the harvest is plenteous. It's the workers that are missing. And so I am telling you to pray for workers, laborers in the harvest. Your job and my job is to not, we, we are not in charge of the harvest. Your job and my job is to pray that God would send workers into the harvest. And this is the idea, pay attention. Here's the idea tonight. This is the idea that most people recoil at when we talk about it inside of the church. And the idea is this, that with and inside of Christianity, it requires work. Now, I'm not talking about work for salvation. I'm not talking about work in that sense. 
I am talking about work in the sense that it takes effort. It requires energy. It takes forethought. It takes time to go out, to win the loss, to pray for people, to invest, to care, to host, to be hospitable. It takes work. And there is something about the day in which we are living where most people are just happy to live in daddy's house, enjoy all of dad and mom's good gifts. There's all kinds of studies that have shown that our generation, more than any other generation, has this need for constant affirmation, positive reinforcement. And this is what Jesus is saying to that. He is saying, get off the couch and get to work. That is what he is saying. Amen. Get off the couch and get to work. He said, well, pastor, just how do we get to work? How is it that we are to be about the Lord's work? There, there, are, there are many, and you'll remember this line from D.L. Moody, there's, there's no limit to what God can do with a man who has fully surrendered himself to him. There's, there, is, uh, there was this time where I, I, I thought, you know, I have to go do something for the Lord. And then I began to realize as God began to teach me and show me truths in his word, that there is actually really nothing that I can do for the Lord. The Lord does not need you or me to do something for him. But what he does ask and the opportunity that he does give is that we would do something in his work. He doesn't need you and me to do something for him, but he gives us opportunities for us to be a part of his work. And the most visible way that God is at work in our world today is through the local New Testament church. The most visible way that God is at work today is through the local New Testament church. And Jesus loves the church. And Jesus is at work through the church. In fact, Paul says that Jesus loved the church so much that he gave himself for it. He, he, he takes the bride, Ephesians 5, he takes, the, he takes the church, rather, as his bride. That is what the Bible teaches. And sometimes people will say things like, well, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. That is like saying, well, I love you, Dave, I just don't love Amanda. I love you, I just hate her. Well, friend, you cannot love me if you hate my wife. Just like you cannot love Jesus and hate the church because Jesus loves the church. And if you love Jesus, then you love what Jesus loves. And you give yourself for what Jesus gave himself for. And just what did Jesus give himself for? He gave himself for the church. There are many people who feel this way, and they feel this way about the church. They have this, this hatred for the church because they say, well, I've been hurt by the church. And what I would say to you is that if you are of the idea that you have been hurt by the church, and if the church is at fault, then what I would tell you is come and talk with us. Schedule a meeting with our deacons, our spiritual leaders, our pastors. Because we believe that as God's people, we ought to be seeking reconciliation. That above anybody and above everyone else, this is what we are trying to be about. Because this is what the Lord was about. But you must remember that churches are not perfect. There are no perfect churches. Do you know why there are no perfect churches? Because there are no perfect pastors. There are no perfect deacons. And before you get all, that's right, there's no perfect pastors or deacons. It's all your fault. There are also no perfect people. 
and churches are made up of people. And John is saying here that our eyes are in fact not on people. Our eyes are on Jesus. But as soon as you put your eyes on Jesus, he redirects our attention to the church. That's what's happening in John 1, or Revelation 1 with John. John is putting his eyes on Jesus, and Jesus is turning John's focus to the church. So we must begin here by asking the question, what is the church? You know, most people cannot answer that, even people who've grown up in church. What is the church? Paul says to First Timothy, if Paul says to Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3, write that verse down so you can read it later. First Timothy 3:15, he says this description of the church. And by way of describing, he is defining for us what the church is. He says that the church of the living God is, in fact, the pillar and ground of truth. The pillar and ground of truth. What we are finding in our world today is a lack of truth. There is an attack on the truth. But the truth is essential. The truth is essential for authentic relationships. The truth is essential for social bonds. The, the truth is essential for spiritual growth. And the church is to be the pillar and ground of truth. The truth is an inflexible reality. It is true or it is false. That's it. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so the truth, listen very closely. The truth is not the church. The truth is God's word. But the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, it is the church that is holding up the truth for all the world to see. The church is not the truth. The church is holding up the truth. The church is holding up the truth for all the world to see. And when the church capitulates on the truth when it gives in to worldly philosophies, then the church loses the ground on which we stand. We lose the ground on which we stand when we surrender the truth because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. So what is the truth? Or, or rather, what is the church? It's the pillar and the ground of truth. What is the church? In the Bible, the first mention of the word church in the New Testament is found in Matthew chapter number 16. Very familiar passage to you, I'm sure, but flip over there. That'll help keep some of you awake. Flip Matthew chapter number 16. Look with me at verse number 18. Go to Matthew 16, look at verse 18. This is Jesus talking. Simon has just declared the Lord to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Many of you remember when we went to Israel, we stood at this site where Peter made this confession. It's a powerful, moving place to stand because there's all kinds of little notches in the rock wall to all these false gods. There's a large cave where they would have been throwing babies off to sacrifice them to these false idols. And in front of this rock, Peter is declaring Christ. He is declaring Jesus to be Christ, the son of the living God. It's a powerful moment. And then, and then Jesus is responding to Peter. You did not come to this on your own. Flesh and blood did not, did not reveal this to you. It says not, you, didn't, you didn't come to that understanding because you're so smart. This was something that God showed you. My Father, which is in heaven, he is the one who revealed this to you. In verse number 18, and I say unto you, and I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail Against it. And so the church is this gathering place then. In fact, this is the actual meaning of the word church. 
It's the gathering place for the people of God. It is the place where we go to hear the truth of God. And we are gathering as the people of God because we have believed on the truth of God's word, namely that Jesus is Christ. And some people think, well, I'm a Christian because I go to church. No, 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 no. You go to church because you are a Christian. The church is not simply a place we go. The church is a people that we are with. This is what it means to understand the term church. The Greek word is ekklesia, a called out group of people who have assembled together with a common goal and a purpose. We, as God's people, called out from a world of sin, we assemble together with other like-minded people who have been saved just the same, and we assemble for the purpose of declaring the truth. The truth. Jesus is saying in this passage, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And there are some people who take that to mean, well, then, then there, there is no, there's no wrong, there's no bad, there's no error that could ever happen in the church. That we can just take for granted the existence of churches. Let me warn you here, because we must be realistic. There are, in fact, thousands of churches that close their door every year. In the U.S. alone, there are as many as four to 7,000 churches that will close their doors in the United States. And I understand the counter-argument to that. Well, Pastor, there's lots of new churches opening, and shouldn't some of those old churches be closing anyway? They died a long time ago. I understand that, and I'm not arguing that point necessarily. I'm simply pointing out the reality that we must be aware that's simply because Christ has made a promise to us that if we are not fulfilling our part as Christians by going out into the field to work, that the church will just always be here. If we are not fulfilling our part to guard the truth that God has given to us, and if we allow false teaching and worldly philosophies and all kinds of heresy and error to come in, then we lose the ground on which we stand. We cannot take for granted that the church will always be here. We could go to Europe. We could go to Egypt. We could go to... All kinds of places in, in, in that part of the world where there were once thousands of churches. Most of which have now been converted to mosques or museums or malls. And how did this happen? Well, at some point the church stopped being the church. So we must be the church. We must purpose to be the church. This is what John is showing us. John is showing us, well, what would it look like to purpose to be the church? There's three things. Here's the first one. We must persevere with Jesus. This is one of the reasons why you need church. You need church because it, fuel, it fuels your faith. It gives you confidence. It gives you the ability to persevere in our day and age in which we live. True Christianity requires perseverance. Jesus persevered for us. Jesus endured suffering for us. This is what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is teaching us. That Jesus went through opposition and strife. He even faced death. Jesus did this for us. 
Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was buried. He rose again the third day. He ascended up to heaven. He sits even right now at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you have put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, then the Bible teaches us that God has sent his spirit to indwell and live in our hearts. And that it is the Holy Spirit of God that is gives us his power. It reminds us of his presence. But namely, he gives us the ability to persevere in this life. This is what you're seeing from John. Look at verse number 9 of Revelation 1. I, John, who am your brother and companion, notice this phrase, in tribulation. Just circle that word. Tribulation. Do you, do you know what got John thrown into prison? Do you know what caused John much tribulation? Simply that John had been faithful to preach the word of God. He had been proclaiming the testimony of Jesus. Notice what he says. I, John, who am your brother and companion in tribulation, I'm on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. What got John in so much trouble? He stood for the truth. What got John in so much trouble? He preached Christ and him crucified. And what was his reward for having stood for the truth and having been faithful to preach Jesus? His reward is that it got him thrown into jail and sentenced to the Isle of Patmos. Now before you think of Patmos as some island resort, let me just tell you exactly what it is. Patmos was really a rock quarry. It's where they would banish, they would exile the worst of the worst criminals to that island. So one church historian, Ramsey, is talking about John's sentencing to the Isle of Patmos. And he says, this sentencing was preceded by a scourging. Then it was marked by perpetual fetters, scanty clothing, insufficient food. You slept on the bare ground in a dark prison under the work and leadership of the military whip. So, so John is going to this island having experienced that. And that is his experience while he was there. But Fox's Book of Martyrs, church history teaches us that before John even got there, that he was put into a, a vat of oil. He was he was boiled alive. And he didn't die. He lives. And so now here's this man who has been boiled alive, who has then been scourged, who's then marked with fetters, who's given just the fewest pieces of clothing you could find, and then thrown onto a prisoner vessel and sentenced to mine rocks. John is saying, and I am experiencing all of this because... I was faithful to the word of God and I was faithful to the testimony of Jesus. You need the church in order to persevere. There's this false gospel that is preached and believed by many that if you come to Jesus, that then Jesus will just take care of all your problems. He'll take all your problems away. He'll make life on earth completely heavenly and you'll never have a bad day. That's not true. To use John's language, our life is not tribulation free. But if you know Jesus and you're a part of a good Bible preaching New Testament church, your life can be tribulation proof. Your life will not be tribulation free, but it can be tribulation proof. That when the tribulation comes, you will be able to stand. You will be able to endure whatever opposition, whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever comes your way. You will be able to handle it. Why? Because of the gift of a local New Testament church. Notice this too. There's two ideas here. There's, there's from this perseverance a partnership in suffering. And there's from this perseverance a purpose in suffering. 
So what John is telling them, he's telling them these two things. He is saying, I am your brother. See it, verse 9? I am your brother. I am your companion. That's amazing language. And here's why it's amazing language. Because John is the most authoritative spiritual human being on planet Earth at this time. John has walked with Jesus. John is the loved disciple. John is written and writing books of the New Testament. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection. And yet, he is coming alongside believers and he is saying, we are brothers and companion in this. And the reality is, there's actually nobody in John's category. You know how easy it would have been for John to say, no, I am the authority on this matter, the last living apostle. But that's not what he's saying. John is looking at the church. He is looking at brand new Christians. And he is saying to them, we are brothers and we are companions in this. This is teaching us something about the church then. That there is a level of encouragement that you get from church. There is a level of encouragement that you cannot get on your own. In fact, 70 times, over 70 times, 7-0, 70 times, the New Testament uses the phrase, one another, love one another, bear one another's burdens, care for one another, pray for one another. Sing with one another. Praise with one another. The New Testament understands Christianity as being lived out, not in isolation, but as being lived out with one another. There's a great book, Top Ten Mistakes Leaders Make. Its author, you might find his name familiar, Hans Finzel. Anybody, does that name ring a bell to anybody? Let me see. If, you, if that name is, sounds familiar, raise your hand. Let me see. Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, go by the bookstore and buy Derek's book on our church's history. And you will find this man's name in there as one of our pastors. The top ten mistakes leaders make. And Finzel says this. Many leaders put paperwork before people work. Paperwork before people work. What he's saying is, what, one of the big mistakes that we can make inside of church work is to think that church is just this to-do list to be checked off. Went to church, check. Sang a song, check. Gave some offerings, check. Shook some hands, check. Full day of church. And he is saying, this is a big mistake to make as a church leader to think that it's simply a checklist that we are doing and not a relationship that we are experiencing. John is saying, we persevere with Jesus. The church fuels our faith. It gives us the ability to persevere. Why? Because we are, in fact, in partnership with other people. But there's a second thing about the church that we're taught in this passage, and that is this, that as a church, we are to worship Jesus. So what does it mean to let the church be the church? It means... We worship Jesus. Look at verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So this is Sunday. That's what he's saying. The Lord's day referred to in the New Testament it means Sunday. That God's people have historically celebrated and observed the Lord's day as Sunday. That's the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's the day he came out of the grave. And so this brand new worship day became Sunday. And notice what he is saying. It is the Lord's day. Do you know how most people think about Sunday? 
football day. Nap day. Sure, we'll give Jesus three hours. But is three hours the whole day? the Lord's day. The Bible is clear. We can worship God at any time. We can worship God in any place. And we can obviously worship God on any day. That is true. You can worship God on a Tuesday at 3 a.m. under a tree if you would like. That's fine. But what the Bible is also very clear on is that as Christians... We gather on Sunday because it is the Lord's day. And the reason we gather is we gather to remember that Jesus rose from the dead for us. So, so, the, so the act of gathering together in worship, like literally getting out of bed, combing your hair, preferably, and, and, and going and being with God's people, that whole thing is supposed to be an act of I remember that Jesus got out of the grave for me. Jesus rose from the dead for me. That is what the whole day is to be an act of service and worship for. And you remember what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16? He does not say, I'm going to go build my club. I'm going to go build my online community. I'm going to go build my YouTube channel. I'm going to build my church, a called out group of people assembled or gathered in one place. What I'm, what I'm advocating, let me speak very clear, what I'm advocating for here is public worship. Public worship. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, that you and I are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but that we should go to worship services at the church, public services at the church, and we should gather collectively with God's people in order to spur one another on to faith, good works, hope, and courage. And I will tell you this, not every group that gathers that calls itself a church, is in fact a church. You remember this, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there were some institutions that people were going to, and, 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 and John is calling them the synagogue of Satan. No one wants their church to be named that. Hey, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to the synagogue of Satan. Okay, no thank you, I'll pass. And, and, and immediately... Here's the retort to this. Well, I'm just not really into organized religion. You know, the longer I've pastored, be 13 years this August, the more I, I am being made aware that that idea, I'm just not into organized religion, that's actually a, a cop-out. But what they're really saying is, I just like my life. I, I, I don't want any accountability I kind of like the things that I do on the weekend and I don't have much time for Jesus. I just like to do my own thing, which if that is your desire, that's very dangerous. Proverbs 18, verse 1. Though, uh, through, through desire, a man having separated himself seeketh and intermeddled with, with all wisdom. You removed yourself from those who have the same goal in mind that you do, which is to worship and serve the living God who died on the cross for them and then to be reminded of his grace and of his goodness and of his love and then to encourage and provoke one another to love and good works, to hold each other accountable, to check on one another and to hold up the truth. And you're removing yourself from that Pew Research says there's top three reasons people say that they stop going to church. Number one, I, I practice my faith in other ways. 
Number two, I, I just disliked the congregation and religious services. Number three, I haven't found a church that I like. Because that was one of the definitions in there. So, so to, to, to counter their three excuses, let me give you 20 reasons why you should go to church. Ready? Not a joke. Ready? Watch this. You can write them down. I'll give them to you later. I'll give them to you tomorrow on a handout. Derek, remind me of this. You should go to church because the Bible teaches us that at church, your heart will not be hardened by sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 12, verse number 13. You should go to church. Number two. You should go to church because God tells you to go to church. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 25. You should go to church because you need encouragement from others and you need to encourage others. Hebrews chapter 25, the latter half of that verse. You should go to church because you need to hear God's word preached. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. You should go to church so that you can exercise your spiritual gift. Romans chapter 12, verse number 6. That's a gift given to you specifically by the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation for the good, Romans is teaching us, of the church. God isn't giving you a spiritual gift so you can be awesome all by yourself. God is giving you a spiritual gift so you can use the gift for the benefit of the church. You should go to church. Because you want to be used by God for good. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 7. You should go to church because you are a part of the body of Christ. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 5. And when the body comes together, we don't leave the hand at home. You should go to church that you may partner in gospel ministry. First, or Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 5. You should go to church so that you can mentor others and you can be mentored by others. Titus chapter 2, verse number 2, verse number 3. You should go to church in order to love one another. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 10. You should go to church in order to show the world the love of Jesus. John chapter 13. You should go to church in order to celebrate the Great Commission and baptism. Matthew chapter 28. An ordinance given to the church. You should go to church in order to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26, another ordinance given to the local church. You should go to church in order to suffer together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 16. You should go to church in order to rejoice together. 1 Corinthians 12 and 16. You should go to church to remind one another of what we were in fact created for. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10. You should go to church because we proclaim the glory of God better together than we do individually. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9. You should go to church because at church you can remember just who you belong to. You are not your own. You belong to him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. You should go to church in order to be equipped. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and verse 12. You should go to church... Because when Christians gather together in church, Jesus shows up. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You ever gone to church and go, hey, where was so-and-so? I wonder how many times Jesus has done that for me. Hey, where was so-and-so? We had church. And you didn't come? Your life and mine, for all of those who are Christians, you should find two rhythms in it. The first should be a rhythm of public worship. The second should be a rhythm of private worship. We open the Bible on Sunday, but that should not be the only day that you open the Bible. We sing on Sunday, but that should not be the only day that you sing. So there's private worship. John is saying... I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I will tell you this, that the depth of your public worship is enhanced by the depth of your private worship. The depth of your public worship, it's, it's meaningfulness, it's significance, it's impact. 
the way in which it moves you closer to the Lord, it is enhanced by the depth of your private worship. If the only time you're opening the Bible is on Sunday, you have an anemic spiritual life. That's like eating one meal a week. You're not going to be strong. You're not going to be healthy. You're not going to be fit. You're not going to have energy. You're going to be anemic. And yet this is what most Christians try to do. They try to live Monday to Sunday in the flesh. Monday to Saturday in the flesh. And then they try to give God two hours or three hours on a Sunday. Thinking as if they've done their religious service. The depth of your public worship is enhanced by the depth of your private worship. So what are we doing at church? How, how, how are we to be the church? We persevere with Jesus as a church. We worship Jesus as a church. Third one and last one, where we began. We serve Jesus as a church. Notice what he is saying. Verse 11. So John hears the voice behind him. Of course, we know the voice to be Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. I am Alpha and Omega. I'm first and last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Do you know what is obviously absent from Jesus' words to John? John is in a very hard season of tribulation. That's what he just said. John's been dipped in oil. He's been scourged. He's mining rocks. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus doesn't talk about John. Jesus doesn't show up and go, hey, John, how's it going, buddy? How are you feeling? I know I left a long time ago. Here's some ointment for that boiling. Now, John has lots of hurts, does he not? Yeah, he does. But when Jesus shows up, Jesus says, hey, John, how are the churches? Do you know how the churches are doing? You and I don't need Jesus to show up in our life and make it all about us. You and I need Jesus to show up in our life to reveal to us who he is. He's Lord. He's Savior. He is King. He is God. And in seeing him for who he is, we are reminded of what he has done for us. He died on the cross. He gave himself for us. He rose from the grave. He sealed our fate. And then we are reminded that this life is as close to hell as we will ever be. And that eternity in heaven is what awaits us. And John is then repositioned. He's redirected. Jesus shows up and he redirects John's concern. Not for John himself, but for the churches. And this stands in stark contrast to what we have done in the church today. We have made the church all about me, I, us. Where we get to be the center of it. Where we think that the church exists to glorify us. The truth is, the church exists to glorify Jesus. And when you have the right understanding of Jesus, and Jesus turns your focus not to yourself, but to others. A good measure of your spiritual health is to ask yourself the question, what is your concern for others? How much do you care about other people? How are you serving others? Amen. 
I think you've got three things. Are there three, are there three subpoints in this one? I think you've got three. We serve others these three ways. First, commitment. Second, compassion. Third, contribution. Now, I, I want to serve Jesus. Well, then serve others. How do I serve others? Commit. Have compassion. And make a contribution. You know, the reality about serving is that it costs you something. It costs you something. It costs you energy. It costs you time. It costs you effort. There's dozens of ways for you to serve in the church. There's dozens of ministries that we have. This is my question for you. How are you serving the church? I'm not asking you how the church is serving you. I am asking you, how are you serving the church? In what area have you made a commitment? I'm going to give my Sundays to. You need workers, I'll be there. You need voices, I'll sign up. You need, you need people to watch the kids, I'm in it. Second, compassion. In what way are you serving the church? Just in and out, in and out, only wor worried about your, your own level of need? Hey, where was sister so-and-so? Where was brother so-and-so? Showing care, showing concern, showing compassion. How about your contribution? I'm not speaking here in financial terms alone. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of your contribution of your whole body, soul, spirit, mind, strength. We love the Lord our God with all of these things. Jesus is telling the disciples, you know how men will know that you love me? Men will know that you love me because of your love. For one another. Amen. This is the greatest indicator of our love for God. Is how do we love one another? Yes. 